Oh, your mic's not on, but my mic is. <laughs> hey, yeah. Nope, still not on. There's a reason for that. Okay, so as many of you may know, for the past year, um, Corey has been training for his black belt in Taekwondo. Whoa, whoa. I didn't say he got it. He's been training. Hold on. And why do, how do I know this, you ask? Well, my, my office shares a wall with what is now called the dojo room. And so for the past 12 months, every Tuesday and Thursday, around eh, 4, 4.30, I have been startled by the sounds of what I can only describe to you as copious amounts of pain and suffering <laughs> coming from the room next to me, right? But I'm proud to say today that my pastor, your pastor, is now a certified black belt. And so if you've ever seen a black belt, there's not much to them. It's literally just a black belt. And, and we at The Experience don't really do things kind of plain. So yeah, right, right. So I thought just, it was only fair. And I, I feel like an occasion such as this deserves something with a little more, I don't know, a little more spice. Uh, <laughs> and so today, Corey, we wanna honor you with an award that very few men have ever received. <laughs> it's a privilege, it's an honor. I, I, I think that this, this award um, will be something that you can display uh, proudly, that you can wear with confidence. And so today, here, Sunday, November 19th, 2017, we, the experienced community, want to present our pastor with the championship belt. <laughs> That's right, that's right, give it up. Come on. There it is. I don't know, I don't know if that'll go around my waist. Okay, here, just for a second. It's, it's actually a kid's belt, it go, it so it goes probably won't like, fit. It goes like halfway around, so it's more of like a thigh belt. Um, where does one even find something like this? No, that's what a, that's, <laughs> that's what a year of hard, hard work looks like, so... Uh, <laughs> And none of you even told me he was behind me the whole time. Like, I didn't even know. <laughs> Man, hey, thank you guys. That was fun. The lights and the rap music and everything. That was good. That was good. Uh, that was so traditionally Taekwondo. So, um, anyways, gosh. If it's your first time here, uh, I mean, like, this is what we do. This is... Uh, it's not even extremely shocking that something like that happens anymore. So uh, it's funny, I was gonna tell a story that every year I buy a bunch of cases of cookies from a young man in our church for a fundraiser that he does, and I found out that they're all missing from the freezer, and they've only been in there for a couple of days, so someone has already stolen, I think, a lot of my cookies, unless they're misplaced somewhere else. But again, someone in this room has loads of my cookies uh, <laughs> that I need back. So... Um, <laughs> So like 20 boxes, anyways, so uh, they're probably somewhere around here. Um, anyways, all right. Oh gosh, I, I think I have to teach the word still today. So uh, if you've never been with us today, we are in the, <laughs> we are in the book of Acts and uh, I've forgotten where I am. Uh, so the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, okay? And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus, his life, and him raising up a group of followers that he's eventually going to send out, and that's what the book of Acts is about. Let me catch up a little bit real quick. Um, okay, so what has happened thus far in the book of Acts is this. The church has started. Um, God has filled his followers with his Holy Spirit. 
The church has grown very, very rapidly. There starts to be oppression against the church. So it starts with threats. It goes towards people start getting thrown in jail and eventually even leads to murder. The people are being destroyed, as the Bible says, because they follow Jesus Christ. Now, this destruction and this persecution has been led by a young rabbi, a brilliant young rabbi named Saul. Saul is heading up to persecution. It has started in Jerusalem, and now he's going to branch out to neighboring cities. And what we find is, in the earlier parts of chapter 9 that we covered last week, he's on his way to one area called Damascus. And on his way there, about a six-day journey, in the middle of that journey, Jesus shows up knocks Saul literally on his butt and says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? Saul doesn't have a good answer for that. And so Jesus tells Saul to go into the city. There's going to be a man waiting for him named Ananias who's going to pray for him. His sight is going to be restored and he's going to suffer for Jesus's name. That's what was told to Ananias and to Saul. So what we find out is we see the number one bad guy has just become the number one good guy. He's going to switch over and be one of the most aggressive uh, uh, proponents of the Christian faith, maybe ever. And so we talked about last week, we talked about a very churchy word. The word is sanctification. Now, all that simply means, are we set aside, you and I, are we set aside to be used by God? Have we chosen to position ourselves in such a manner to where God can use us, okay? Now, this week, we're going to talk about the big question. Um, we're going to talk about temporary life, this life now, and we're going to talk about eternal life, okay? So we're going to talk about some pretty serious stuff towards the end of this message, right? And Kyle set this up really, really well for this very serious topic of conversation that we're going to have. So uh, anyways, you should have got a notes handout. It has virtually everything I'm going to say in it. If you don't have a notes handout, if you have a smartphone, the Uversion app, Click on the bottom right button and then click on events. Our church will pop up, all the notes, everything. If you don't have that uh, and if you don't have the notes, if you have a Bible, chapter 5, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, fifth book of the New Testament, chapter 9, starting in verse 19, we're going to read there. And if you don't have any of those things, you're still okay because I'm going to read it to you and then we'll break it down, okay? So I'm going to pray. We'll dive into this and um, let's see where the Lord takes us today. Lord Jesus, God, we love you so much. Lord, we thank you, God. Seriously, Lord, thank you, God, that we can be a church that laughs and has a good time, God, and that we can just, that we can just have fun, God. You're not against fun, Lord. You're, you're, this is why we have community, so we can laugh and just be together and, and strengthen each other. God, thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on us today. Open up our minds. Open up our eyes. Help us, God, to absorb everything you want us to absorb. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's not a follower of you, we just pray that they feel comfortable and welcomed and that something said today encourages them and strengthens them maybe to start this journey. Lord, we pray that you bless every church, bless every nonprofit, bless our homeless brothers and sisters, God, who uh, as the weather gets colder that they have to sleep out in these elements. And I pray, God, that we can create a way to, to get them off the streets and to help them and give them opportunity, Lord. Lord Jesus, God, we just pray that you bless us today. We need you so desperately. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in the ninth chapter, fifth book of the New Testament. I'm going to start in verse 19b, kind of the second half of that verse, and I'll read and I'll break it down. So Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. But all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill Saul, but their plot became known to Saul. So they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening 
in the wall. Now here's the thing, not everyone becomes a follower of Jesus as rapidly as Saul did, but not everyone is knocked off their horse on their way to persecute Christians by Jesus himself who says he's the savior. But that's what happened to Saul. So when it says that immediately he started saying Jesus is the son of God, well, of course he did. He just met the son of God. And the first place he goes to to proclaim this is in the synagogues. Why? Well, one, Paul would have been extremely comfortable in the synagogues. He would have been extremely comfortable because he was a rabbi himself. He was a scholar. He probably spent the majority of his life in the synagogues, in the temples. And so he went to the synagogues. He was comfortable in this environment. He also knew that if he could persuade the people in the synagogue, that it would spread rapidly throughout the rest of the city because they were the leaders of the city. So he went to the synagogue. And of course, when he got there, right, when he got to Damascus and he started telling everyone that Jesus is the Savior, of course, everyone's skeptical. Not only the non-believing Jews, but the Christians were skeptical. Why? Because they knew his reputation and they said, man, this guy was on his way to our town to persecute us. They say, destroy us. He was on his way to hurt us. Now, he was confounding the Jews, blowing their minds because he was proving that Jesus is the Savior. Now, how was he capable of doing that? Two things that are very, very important for us. One is he knew the scripture. He would have been a scholar in the scripture. So if anyone would have been able to see Jesus in the Old Testament, it should have been a rabbi. And since he had this experience with Christ, he looked back on all of his knowledge of the Old Testament and it became clear. So he had a knowledge of the scripture, listen, and he had a personal experience with Jesus. If we're going to be effective with telling people about Christ, we must have a rudimentary knowledge of the scripture and we must have had a personal experience with Jesus. Things have not changed. It's the same way that we are effective today, okay? So over time, and when I say over time, more than likely Saul hung out in Damascus for about three years. So when it says many days, it literally means many days. So he was there for about three years in Damascus. And after this time, after he'd started a lot of people following Jesus Christ, they wanted to kill him as well. And what's ironic is this, guys, the hunter has now become the hunted. Not only this, he had been in an area for three years and raised up his own disciples. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Very, very interesting. And so his disciples learned that they wanted to kill Saul, so they were going to smuggle him out of the city. Now, here's what we see. In verse 16 of, of chapter 9, Jesus tells Ananias, that's a guy that prayed for Saul when he went into Damascus. He was a believer in Jesus. Jesus told Ananias that Saul is going to suffer for my name's sake. Now, this has already begun within the first couple of years that he's getting death threats and he has to go through this kind of humiliating exit to get out of the town. Now, here's something we learn, and not everyone's comfortable with this, but I think it's very biblical. Suffering is a part of the Christian experience for all of you. All of you will suffer on some level for Jesus Christ's name. Now, why in the world does God allow Christians, his followers, to suffer? Why would he do that? Well, there's several reasons for that. One, as a Christian, we should find it an honor that we suffer for the name that has suffered for us. We should be honored by the fact that Jesus suffered and died for us. So if we suffer, we are associated with him. That's a good thing. Suffering also purifies our faith. It refines us. Like the Bible says, like gold through a fire, suffering refines our faith. It purifies our faith. It's the only way for us to have ourselves pruned and cleaned up and, and, and corrected by God sometimes is through suffering. Suffering builds empathy. It's hard for us to empathize with people who are going through something if we've never been through anything. But if you've been through it, if you have the scars to prove it, right, and then someone goes through something similar, you can say, I can, I can see where they're coming from. I can feel what they're going through. We empathize with them. Suffering builds character. You guys ever met someone who's never been through any suffering? That's not who we typically go to for help. Hey, man, I know you've never been through anything, but I'm really going through it. Can you help me? Says no one, right? That's not what we do. We find people who've been through that, and we ask them, how did you make it through? How did you do this? You've been through the fire. Help me. I'm going through it. Suffering also builds community. 
If I were to ask all of you in this room, don't do it, but if I were to ask all of you to stand up if you know someone who's died of cancer, the majority of you would stand up. If I continued to ask you questions, remain standing if you had a relative who died of cancer. Still, you know, many of you would be standing up. And then if I were to finally get to the point where I were to say, remain standing if you had a spouse that has died of cancer. In this room of a thousand, there may be 10 or 15 of you, maybe. But if I were to do that, that 10 or 15 of you, I bet you guys would exchange numbers. I bet you'd get to know each other. You would have something to talk about that no one else in this room can feel and understand like you do. So sometimes suffering creates community. That's why through times of persecution, the church always grows, always grows. All right, next part. So when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples, that means the followers of Jesus, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with him in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and he debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. When the brothers found out They took Saul down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and the church increased in numbers. So as Saul was in Damascus, right, not only becoming a follower of Jesus, but amassing more followers of Jesus, word had gotten around. So by the time Saul gets down to Jerusalem, everyone knew of his supposed conversion, right? But the Christians, they they weren't called that yet, but the followers of Jesus, they weren't buying it yet. They were afraid. We don't know if we trust this guy quite yet. We don't know if he's a disciple of Jesus quite yet. So they were kind of like pushing away from him. In walks a guy named Barnabas. This is an important, important character in the story. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, he shows up meets with Saul, takes Saul in front of the apostles, that's the original followers of Jesus, Peter and John and those guys, brings Saul in front of them and says, I can vouch for this guy. I know that he had an encounter with Jesus. He was teaching in Jesus' name in Damascus. I believe what he says. And so after talking with the apostles, Saul was accepted by the Hellenistic and Palestinian Christians. All that means is the traditional Christians, or I'm sorry, the traditional Jews that became Christians, the Palestinians, and the Greek-speaking, more modern, liberal, if you will, Jews who became Christians, the Hellenistic. And he was accepted by both groups. And because he was accepted by both groups, now Saul goes out in Jerusalem and he starts speaking boldly about who Jesus is. He's got support, he's got friends with him, he goes out and he's rocking and rolling. Now again, this sounds oddly familiar. Saul goes out into Jerusalem, he converses and he debates with the Jews and they attempted to kill him. Sounds like a young man who also conversed and debated with Jews and a rabbi did kill him, a man named Saul. So Stephen, who was murdered for Jesus' name At the hands of Saul, Saul now takes up his mantle. He starts doing what Stephen started. Isn't this amazing? Look at the turn of events here. And so since it's not yet Saul's time to die, the brothers, the Christians, took him out of town. They took him to the coast, an area called Caesarea. They put him on a ship and they sent him up north to Turkey to an area called Tarsus. So he doesn't end up the same way Stephen did, who was stoned to death, okay? So here's the thing. We're not going to hear about Saul for a little bit. Just a brief period of time in reading Acts, we're not going to hear about Saul. Now, in real time, Saul was going to be gone for almost a decade. He was going to be gone. He's going to move up north, and and, and so we're going to focus on other people who are doing other things in the church at this time. Now, I don't know about you. When I read the Bible, or at least when I used to read the Bible and the first couple of times I read through it, I thought everything happened immediately after each other, right? So you read about these things, you're like, okay, Saul goes to Tarsus, then he comes back and he does this. And you're like, okay, that was, you know, we think in like airplane time, right? He just flew up there, hung out, came back, you know, next day, right? Not the way it works. These men and women did not develop overnight as the men and women of God that we know them as now. It took time. And now listen, 
That doesn't mean they weren't growing or that, that God was slow or something like that. It should be encouraging to us because we know that we don't have to reach perfection overnight. We're never going to reach perfection. We should, also, we should always be growing closer and closer to God, but it takes time for us to mature in our faith and become what we're supposed to be, right? Look how fancy I'm about to get on you guys. Okay, so here's a map of the Middle East. That's not fancy in and of itself, but watch this. Okay, boom. Saul went up <laughs> to what is modern-day Syria, and that's where Damascus was, and that's where he had his conversion, okay? Modern-day Syria. He comes back southwest and to modern-day Israel, right in the middle. That's where Jerusalem is. And then when they took him out of town and he hopped on a boat, he went up to what is modern-day Turkey. reason I'm showing you this is sometimes I think it's just interesting to see kind of the scope of where all these things are going on. Uh, Saul, I almost said Paul, that's kind of a spoiler alert. Saul is going to travel a lot around the Mediterranean, but we already see in the first couple of years of his conversion, he's going around quite a bit. He's covering a lot of ground in the first four years of his conversion. We also see something about the church, not just the church, the ecclesia, the local church. We also see something about the global church, that it says, this is interesting, now that the number one persecutor of the church has become a follower of Jesus, they don't have to worry about that for a while. So the church grows extremely rapidly in this time of, as the Bible says, peace. It says in Judea in the south, in Galilee in the north, in Samaria in the middle of Israel, Christianity, again, not called that yet, but the followers of Jesus are growing like wildfire. Now, they grew in numbers, which means more people, and they also grew in depth, which means not just the amount of people, but the quality of their relationship with God grew as well. Now, the only way that that happens is it says that the followers of Jesus respected, feared the Lord, and they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to get off on a, a slight tangent here for a, spec, uh, a second. If we do not respect the power of God, if we do not respect the message of God through Christ, we will not only stop growing numerically, we will stop growing individually. And that's a problem. Now listen, one of the first red flags of spiritual immaturity is when people complain that the church has gotten too big. I'm not trying to be rude, but whenever people say, oh, it took me 15 minutes to get communion, praise God that there was enough people in front of you also honoring the death, burial, and resurrection that it took you so long to get communion. That is a wonderful problem. It is a wonderful problem that there's not a lot of parking spaces. It is a wonderful problem that the church is busting out of the seam. Well, Corey's all concerned about numbers. Absolutely I am. I want more people in heaven and less people in hell. That's exactly what I want. So whenever people say you guys are all about numbers, yes. I want more of you to live an eternal life with me and with Christ forever. Of course I care about numbers. Well, you're just, I, I had a guy on my Facebook tell me that I should be ashamed of myself for boasting about baptizing 117 at our last worship night. The Bible boasts about baptizing 3,000 in one day. I hope we get to that number one day and I'm gonna put it all over social media because it should be celebrated. These are people who have given their life to Christ. Is it more uncomfortable? Yes. Is it going to get warmer in this room when we get packed in? Yes. All of these things. We are talking about eternity, guys. And we're going to have to give up some comforts and some relationships and some pleasures in order for more people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But not only should we be growing this way, guys, as individuals, we've got to be getting into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Peter and John and Luke and James and all these, the, the kind of fathers of our faith, they didn't have the time to run around to every single Christian and be like, hey, like, we love you, we love you, like, let me, you know, like, like pat you on the head and shake you and tell you how good Jesus is every single day. They couldn't do that. It just, it was impossible. So what the followers of Jesus had to do, guys, please listen to this. They had to be in touch with Jesus, have a personal relationship with Jesus, personal relationship. They had to read the word of God and they had to learn to let themselves be encouraged by the Holy Spirit through their personal relationship. Listen, we cannot run up to you. No one in this room has the time to keep track of everyone all the time. We have to, be, we have to learn to encourage ourselves 
through the, through the word of God and through having a relationship with him and his Holy Spirit will comfort us and counsel us and be with us. We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus, okay? All right, next part. Sorry about that. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon or Sharon, however you want to say that, saw him and turned to the Lord. So we leave Saul, right? Because we're going to take a break from Saul. And we go back to Peter. Peter is northwest of Jerusalem. He's in an area called Lydda. And there's a lot of followers in Jesus in this area because of another young man that we've talked about, a guy named Philip. He's already been up there. He's already started a wildfire of people following Jesus. So as Peter goes up there, there's a man who's already a follower of Jesus. His name is Aeneas, and he's been paralyzed. We don't know exactly why for eight years. Now, Peter seen miraculous things happen. That was nothing new to him. Guys, Peter is the only person that I know of that walked on water besides Jesus. So Peter's like no stranger to the miraculous. He had seen some crazy, crazy stuff. So Peter walks up to this guy, and I personally find it awkward or, or, or weird or just out of place. This man didn't ask to be healed. He didn't reach out to Peter. He didn't say, hey, man, can you pray for me? Peter just walks up and says, hey, Jesus Christ has healed you. Get up and make your bed, right? Which means get up and take your bed and move on, right? And so it says immediately, this guy got up. This miracle quickly spread around all of the city. Tons of people started following Jesus because of this miracle. And that leads us to an extremely important lesson. The ultimate goal of every miracle that has ever taken place, the ultimate goal of miracles is the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. Everything that happens miraculous is to point us towards Jesus. Now listen, it is wonderful when people get physically healed. It is wonderful when people get mentally healed. But if the soul is not healed, all healing is in vain. If the soul is not healed, you can have a perfect physical body, but if Christ comes back and we are not saved, it is all for nothing, all for nothing. So let's talk about healing a little bit, right? Some people are uncomfortable about these kinds of conversations. Do we believe in healing today? Absolutely, we should. Not only do we believe in modern day healing, we should pray expecting and believing that God can do that. Every time we pray, now, does that mean that every time we pray for healing, it happens? It does not mean that. We need to know and we need to be spiritually mature enough to know that it's not always God's will to heal. How do we know that? Jesus looked up to God and he said, God, if it be your will, let this cup of suffering pass from me. What happened? Jesus suffered. It was not God's will for that suffering to pass. Jesus had to go to the cross. There was a purpose for that. So ultimately, when I personally pray for you, if you come up and you're sick and I lay my hands, I say, God, in Jesus' name, please heal them. But Lord, let your will be done. Ultimately, I want the will of God in that situation. That's how we pray, okay? Last part. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. So if any of you guys are gonna have a girl and you want a good Christian name, there you go. She was, always, <laughs> she was always doing good works and acts of charity. See, now you guys feel bad. In those days, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there, and they sent two men to beg him, don't delay in coming with us. So Peter got up, and he went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Then Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turning towards the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. Then he called the saints and the widows, and he presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
And Peter stayed on many days in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. And I'll tell you why that's important here in a second. So here's something that's neat. We now have the mention of a female disciple, which I know to some of you may not seem like a big deal. The Christian faith has always been the most progressive religion in the world when it comes to women. And the Bible tells us this over and over and over again. Here, we have a woman who's not just a follower of Jesus, but a a huge monument of the faith in her town. She does tons and tons of community service, and she was known for doing community service, especially for the widows and for the poor. This was a good woman, an important woman. And so here's something that's interesting. If you've been with us through Acts, we've seen a lot of supernatural things happen, gifts of the Spirit. We've seen miracles We've seen healings, we've seen speaking in tongues, we've seen prophecy. Now we get to see some different kinds of miracles. We've seen the gift of exhortation, which means encouragement from Barnabas. We've seen the gift of evangelism, which means bringing people into the family of God. That's what Philip had. We see the teaching gift from Saul, and now we see from this woman, Tabitha, the gift of service, of serving people. Now, if you've never read about the gifts of the Spirit, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4, I recommend that all of you read those chapters, pray about those chapters, and pray for God to reveal to you what your gifts are and for you to work in those gifts. Go back and read that. So normally, here's what's interesting, guys. Normally, a body would not have been left overnight. So if someone died, even if it was late at night, they would have prepared the body and they would have buried it as soon as possible. Now, Tabitha's body was not prepared for burial. She died, they cleaned her up, they put her up in this room, but they did nothing else. What we can infer from that is they believed that she was gonna rise from the dead. They didn't prepare her to be buried. They knew Peter was near. Now listen, let me be careful with this. They knew an elder of the church was near, and it's not that the Holy Spirit was any more powerful with with Peter or that, that God loved Peter more, But Jesus said the elders of the church should pray for the sick. So one of the elders was passing through. They sent some people to get one of the elders. He came by, and these people had complete faith that God was going to do something. They prepared for something miraculous. Now, as Peter stood by Tabitha's body, the widows that she had helped stood there crying, holding articles of clothing that she had made for them. This was a good woman, right? And so what we see, it essentially this kind of, not a funeral, but a funeral-esque situation. Many times in the Bible, death is referred to us as an enemy. Death is the consequence that humanity has for sin being introduced into humanity. That doesn't mean that if you know someone that's, that, that has died, that, that there was something necessarily sinful with them. But humanity, all humans, eventually die because in, in Genesis chapter 3, sin was introduced into humanity. The message of Christ, though, is life, the opposite of death, that no one truly dies if they follow Jesus Christ, because even though we die in this earth, we are resurrected and we live forever with him, that none of us truly die if we believe in Jesus. So again, death is an enemy. If Jesus is about light and life, Satan, and I'm going to get a little preachy at you here for a second, Satan's desire for all of you, as the Bible says, is to steal which means steal your contentment and joy now to kill you, literally, to kill you, to snuff out your life, and then in that to ultimately destroy you for eternity, to take your soul into hell with him and destroy you for eternity. Now, this progression of literal and spiritual death, like I said, is Satan's goal for all of you. So again, not to be dramatic, if you've ever wondered if hell is coming for your marriage, it is. If you've ever wondered if hell is coming for your children, it is. It is Satan's ultimate goal to rip you apart, to rip your children apart, your marriages, your relationships, everything about you, because he hates you. And in times of loss, I'm talking about now, when anyone dies and we feel regret and we feel grief and we feel fear, that's exactly what the devil wants. That's exactly what he wants. So here's what death should do to the Christian. Whenever someone passes away, it should be an opportunity for us to reflect and to introspect back on us. I hope you guys know funerals are not for the dead. Funerals are for the ones who are living. And it is a wonderful opportunity to revisit the gospel. 
Death should remind us to live. And the only way we truly live is via Jesus Christ. That is it. That we need to look at these things and be reminded that, that life is short. It is temporary. We're not, we're not promised longevity. We're not promised tomorrow, Jesus says. Therefore, we live for Christ today. So, Peter asks everyone to leave. Please, everyone leave the room. Now, here's the thing. Raising the dead is not a norm in Christianity. Never has been. Even in Jesus' ministry, he did it three times that we know of. Here's what's funny, though. Peter was there for all three of those. So if anyone believed someone could be raised from the dead, it was Peter. So Peter asked them to, asked them to leave. I don't know why that gives me chills. Peter asked them to leave, and he gets by the body of Tabitha, and he looks at her with authority and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Tabitha, get up. And she does. The result is this woman is raised to life. The believers rejoice. Many people come to the faith. It becomes something that people tell their children and their grandchildren, and it goes on and on and on. And so Peter hangs out in this area for a little bit longer. And he hangs out with a guy named Simon who's a leather tanner. And you guys are like, why in the heck is that important, right? It's important because Peter was a Jew. And Peter was raised under rabbis. And rabbis, there were certain kinds of people in society. Listen to this. There are certain kinds of people in society that the religious folks wouldn't touch. And a tanner was one of those because they worked with dead bodies. They worked with the corpses and the carcasses of dead animals. And so rabbis wouldn't touch these people. They were unclean. They would have nothing to do with them. Peter actually moves in with this guy for a while. And what we learn from that is Peter is no longer bound by religion. Peter is free in Jesus Christ to reach out to everyone who will listen. And that's what we see in Christianity. The freedom that there is no one out of bounds for us to reach out to and to love and to show the love of Christ. So in the next chapter that we're going to talk about next week, Peter's going to leave this area He's going to share the gospel with the first 100% true Gentile, non-Jew, a guy named Cornelius, but we'll talk about him next week. Let me switch gears for a second, guys, and here's where we're going to get into, into, into deeper waters, okay? This life, what we're experiencing right now, can be extremely difficult. And guys, if you're in this room and you have not reached extreme difficulties and adversities in this life, I don't mean this to scare you but it, it will happen. Jesus promised us a lot of things, but one of the things he promised us was this. He says, in this life, Jesus says, there will be suffering. That means, quite frankly, in this life, there will be suffering. We will go through hard times. We will go through loss. We will go through betrayal. We will have people stab us in the back. We will have all kinds of things happen to us, some of them that we self-induce, some that are completely, we're innocent, and they happen to us. Now, in these times of difficult, we're going to talk like adults in this room. We're just going to be real straightforward today. In these times of difficulty, we are all prone to selfish ambition. I want what I want. I want to be successful. I want to do what I want to do. I want to go where I want to go. I want to, I want to achieve the things that I want to achieve. We are all prone, if we're not careful, to go that direction. We're all prone to our lustful desires. That's why the number one app in the world right now is Tinder, an app solely designed to hook up with people for casual sex. That's why words like polyamorous are more and more popular within couples, that we have open relationships. There is no boundaries anymore to sexuality and sexual expression. We are fulfilling our lustful desires, and that's a very easy route for us to go when life gets difficult because it adds a quick fix. It feels good for a temporary amount of time. We're all prone to go the easy way, to go the comfortable way, to preserve ourselves first, to become narcissistic. All of us in this room are prone to these things. Now listen, if we're just going to be honest, all of you who've made mistakes in this room, all of these things give us a temporary fix. Anyone who tells you that sex is not good, of course it's good. But outside of the confines of the biblical parameters... There are repercussions for this, that it does not feel good after the fact when you know you've done something wrong. It doesn't feel good when there's that unwanted pregnancy or when there's HIV or when there's a sexually transmitted disease. There are repercussions for getting outside of these boundaries. But in the moment, there's a temporary fix. Buying that new car or getting that bigger house. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things, but the reason why these things become addictions is because they are not permanent solutions. They are temporary solutions. 
that never quite satisfy, never quite satisfy. And ironically, these temporary fixes of life ultimately lead us to eternal death. What happens is this, we start to exchange forever for now. And now passes, these things go away. Now look, I don't know exactly what hell looks like. People argue, is it literal flames? Is it literal fires? Or literally a lake of fire, all these things. I don't know if there is or there isn't, and I'm not really that concerned about it. I know for a fact that, that hell is an eternal separation from God, and whatever that looks like, it's going to be bad. Whatever that looks like, it's not going to be a good place to be. And so on the flip side of that, we have this temptation. We're just being honest. We're being honest. We all have this temptation when times get tough to take the quick, easy route for a temporary shot of quote-unquote life. All of us do it. And in turn, we exchange the eternal for the temporary. So whenever we talk about resurrections in the Bible, right? Again, there's not a whole lot of them. But every time we talk about a resurrection in the Bible, it is a foreshadowing for our eternity. And not just for our eternity with Christ, the resurrections in the Bible are a foreshadowing for what we can have in our life now, that the Bible says we can live in abundance now. That doesn't mean that if you give your life to Christ, you're going to like, you know, have a couple hundred dollar bills show up in your wallet. It doesn't mean you're going to drive a $70,000 car. And again, I don't have any problem with those things. But that's not the kind of abundance that the Bible's talking about. We have, we have made it shallow. We've made abundance and fulfillment some kind of material thing. And God thinks bigger than that. You know, the beauty of heaven is not just the streets of gold and the pearly gates and the foundations that are made of precious stones. That's, like, that's a bonus. The beauty of a relationship with God, listen to this, is we're not happy with God because happy is based on circumstance. God gives us contentment, which is not based on circumstance. That regardless of how little I have, I still have joy because I have God. That regardless of what people try to take from me, regardless of how little I make or what achievements I do on this earth, that I have true purpose, that God gives us peace, that it's not a fleeting thing, that we have this security with God. We have, as the Bible says, a fullness of life, a purpose, a destiny, something that no one can rob from us. Not only a better life now, though, but if we invest well in the temporary, we eventually inherit the eternal. We have a promise of a life with God in paradise forever. Let me show you the end of the book. Let me show you what happens. Let me, let me do the ultimate spoiler alert. This is what happens when we follow Christ. There will come a time. Now listen, if I'm not mistaken, in this very chapter, it goes through the details of heaven. 12 foundations, the new earth where we have an open gate to the city to where we can go explore streets of gold, mansions, all these beautiful things that are just, again, that's just icing on the cake. But the real thing that Jesus wants to communicate to those who follow him is this. One day we will enter into a realm, a place with him where death will no longer exist. There will be no more children that get cancer. There will be no more malnourished kids on the other side of the world. There will be no more homelessness. There will be no more grief. There will be no more crying. He simply says, pain won't exist. Imagine a life to where there's no more insecurity. Imagine a life to where we don't starve ourselves to look like the woman on the magazine, right? to where we don't have to augment ourselves or change ourselves to make others happy. Imagine a time, a place, an environment to where we are completely confident because we are full of the Holy Spirit. We are with God. Imagine a place where there's no more jealousy. No one gossips. No one talks bad about each other. There's no rivalry. There's no war. No one's worried about where their next meal's going to come from. Imagine a place where there's not just good people, but everyone's perfect. Where we don't even need a sun because the light of Christ fills everything. 
Imagine that. And where are those previous things? It says in Revelation that they are cast into the pit, that there is no more death. There is no more fear. There is no more anxiety or depression. There is no more divorce or hurt or abandonment. There are no more scars of the previous life. And here's where it gets sad. Will everyone go there? No. Because nothing vile or nothing false can enter in. And so those who have lived lives that are vile and those who have believed things that are false cannot enter but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Why is us sharpening each other and praying for each other so important? Why? Because everything hinges on it. What's at stake? Everything's at stake. Everything. Bigger than just your marriage or your relationships. Bigger than just your finances or paying your bills. This is forever. Forever. So I ask you, and I ask you with all the genuineness I can muster, with all the love that I have in my heart, I ask you, how is your relationship with Jesus? Well, Corey, I go to church. So if you only talk to your spouse for an hour and a half a week, is that a good relationship? Then why in the world do we treat our husband like that? Be honest. How is your relationship with the Lord? Husbands, do you love your wife like Christ loves the church? Giving everything for her. Wives, do you respect and revere your husband trusting that he's leading you closer to Christ? Parents, are you instilling a fear of the Lord into your children? Do we have a sense of urgency in us that if we do not take the light into areas, not only will they remain dark here, that possibly people will remain in darkness forever? Do we still know that we are migrants passing through? That this is not your home forever? That we're on borrowed time? That everything that we have is stewarded by us? We don't own anything. This is my stuff, it's not your stuff. God has trusted you with this for a time. What are we doing with it? How is your relationship with the Father? Do you remember that Christ died for us? Do you remember that he has poured out his Holy Spirit? Do you remember that we've been given a purpose and a commission? Do you remember that God says you're a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a peculiar people set apart for his purposes? Or are we going through the motions forgetting Everything, everything is in the balance. Everything. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, I'm going to humble myself as your, your, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I'm, I'm, I'm going to beg you. I'm going to implore you. If there is sin in your life, if there is sin in your life, I implore you, I beg you, humble yourself and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. I'm going to go even further. If you are unsure if there is sin in your life, Humble yourself and say, God, examine my heart. God, turn the lights on. Point them at me. And if there is anything within me, God, anything within me, God, that needs to be repented of and turned away from, show me. If you have not taught your kids to fear the Lord, start today. Teach them what it means to love God and to love their neighbors. If you have dropped the ball with your marriage, turn it around today. Will it take time? Of course it'll take time. 
But if you invite God into your marriage, if you, if you humble yourselves, if you ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness, if we have urgency that what we do now in the temporary ripples forever and ever and ever, turn, turn from the things that we're doing and rest in Christ, depend on Christ, speak to Christ. If your heads are still bowed and your eyes are closed, if you need prayer, there'll be men and women up here, be humble, come and get prayer. Let someone else bear that burden. Confess your faults if you got them, let them pray for you. If you haven't taken communion for a while, if that's become mundane or routine to you, ask Christ to forgive you of your sins. Take that communion and remember that we serve a God that is so personal that he came down in our form and died for our sins. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, if you feel anything right now, please don't be afraid. Find someone to talk to. Send us an email. Call us tomorrow. Take a leap of faith and say, God, if you're real, show me. And I believe that God will show you in some way. Do not let this moment pass. Everything rides on it. Everything. Father, I love you, God. Lord, I pray right now that you just start to shine your light on our hearts. God, if there's anything in our heart that needs to be dealt with, Father, expose it to us and give us the courage to ask for your forgiveness, to seek the forgiveness of others. God, give us the courage to get prayer. Give us the courage, Lord, to change our trajectory and our, our direction, God. Humble us. God, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't believe, Lord, I just pray that you touch their heart, that they felt welcomed and, and invited into this place, and that they can start that road to knowing you. For everyone who gets prayer, Father, honor it, please, Lord. Wherever two or more are gathered in your name, you're there, God. Father, we love you. Give us a sense of urgency for our children, for our families, for our marriages, for our neighbors. Put a fire in our belly, God. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit, Father. Protect us from evil, God. Deliver us from temptations. Put a protection around our mind and our thoughts. Give us wisdom and discernment, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. It's in your son's name that we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.